Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, the unforgivable sin. And our scripture that we're going to be going to first is in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And I just want to come right out and say today that this is going to be a teaching sermon. This is going to be something where I'm going to be covering a lot of different scriptures, a lot of different ideas, and some ideas that may be a little bit troubling and a little bit complex. And I'm going to try to do it in 20 to 30 minutes. But at the end of this, if you have any questions or comments um, or anything like that, just write them down and we'll take a few questions at the end of it if you have any questions about something that is going on in this sermon. In saying that, I'm going to ask this of you to please listen to the whole message uh, before you just hear one part of it and kind of close off the rest because something offends you or something uh, doesn't make sense to you or you don't want to believe that. This is a fairly complex biblical truth, and it's going to take some time to kind of completely unpack it for you. I'm also going to be speaking about some sensitive issues regarding the unforgivable sin, and this may invoke some bad memories or experiences that you may have had but again, I ask you to listen to the end and be willing to openly share your questions with anybody. So saying all that, I want to start off with talking about an organization that, that is still called the Rational Response Squad. In 2006, an organization called the, the Rational Response Squad issued an offer to give away a free DVD about atheism or a free book called The God Delusion by a relatively famous atheist named Richard, Dock, or Richard Hitchens to the first 100, or excuse me, 1,001 people that would record and post a YouTube video to the internet where they adamantly denied the Holy Spirit's existence or profaned his name. They took this idea from what is commonly believed by Christians and part of Christian doctrine that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an automatic, irrefutable, one-way ticket to hell. And that they would forever put themselves outside of the forgiveness that God <laughs> offers through Jesus Christ. And originally, I was going to post a couple of these for you. But most of them have some pretty strong profanity. Um, or they were wearing clothing that was very suggestive or had profanity written on the clothing. So I really couldn't find anything that I would be comfortable showing in a church. And in fact, there is generally so much hatred and so much vitriol in these um, videos that they posted that I'm surprised if they actually changed anybody's mind about God. From the way they presented themselves, it wasn't very winsome. It wasn't something that you would say, wow, that was such a great sounding argument. Let me go join your team and be as hate-filled and angry as you are. What these people didn't understand and what the rational response um, squad didn't understand is that if your heart is so hard that you could publicly and gleefully and, and with all that emotion post a video like that, you're already on your way to hell. You didn't, you didn't change anything by posting this video. It's not like that video is going to send you to hell version 2 or put you into a deeper level of hell. In fact, the biblical truth is actually this. Humanity's default destination is hell. We are born in sin, and all sin has to be punished by God. And from the time you reach an age where you understand right from wrong and you can grasp 
that there are consequences for your actions, you become morally responsible for those actions. Amen. Sooner or later, you're going to violate God's laws as found in the Bible's moral teaching, and because of that, he has to judge you, and because of that, he has to send you to hell. That's just Christianity 101, and it's the core of what we believe and what the Bible teaches and the whole reason that Jesus had to go to the cross. So the people, the, the Rational Response Squad, essentially just wasted a lot of money to give people what they already had. A one-way ticket to eternal torment. Wasn't very smart, was it? Wasted a lot of money. But this idea of an unforgivable sin is what the Bible calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this idea is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, meaning they come from the same source or the same general stories told in the same general way. And you can see that as you, look, as you line these Gospels up, that they're going in pretty much the same order, telling the same thing. That's why they call them the Synoptic Gospels. And we're going to focus on the situation where Jesus taught us this idea of blasphemy from the Holy Spirit from Mark's perspective. Now, a little bit of background of what Jesus is discussing here. Jesus is in the first of three and a half years of public ministry. It's about A.D. 27, 28 or so. He's recorded about eight to ten miracles um, up until this point. And these miracles have caught the attention of the Jewish leadership and large Crowds are starting to follow him. So the Jewish leadership send out envoys to, to ask him, you know, who are you? And the Jewish ruling council, which is made up of the Pharisees, which include the teachers of the law, and the Sadducees are kind of the two major divisions within the Jewish faith. It's kind of like saying that the Protestants and the Catholics, or if you're in Islam, the Shiite and the Sunni, the two basically major denominations within those faiths, um, was made up the Sanhedrin here. And they sent out representatives to follow Jesus around to confront him and report back to the Sanhedrin. And this is one of the encounters. So we pick that up in Mark chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 22. That says, And the teachers of the law, these are members of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, He's possessed by Beelzebel. And by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. He asked, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you that people can be forgiven of all their sins and all every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. So let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this message today and make this idea of what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what this unforgivable sin is, that you would make it very clear in our lives. Because we don't want to go anywhere near it, Father. Matter of fact, we want to run as far away from that as we possibly can. 
So Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just give us open minds, hearts, and spirits to hear what your spirit is saying to the church today through the reading of, and study of your word. And I ask this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So today we're going to learn about what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And before we can do that, let's define exactly what blasphemy is. Because the definition of words really mean a lot, don't they? You have to properly define what we're talking about before we can understand um, complex ideas. And I want to focus on the one word here, which is blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is defined by most theologians to speak ill of or mock the work, to mock the words, or mark, mock the character of a deity. And the Pharisees did all three here. They questioned Jesus' ability to perform miracles under his own power, and in doing so, they questioned Jesus' deity and they questioned his authority. They constantly questioned his um, teachings, that he was not accurate, that he was, he was going outside of what they believed the Bible was saying according to their own beliefs and traditions. So they constantly questioned what he had to say. And they directly accused him of working for the devil and using satanic power to accomplish all these miracles and all these great works and all this awesome teaching. They tried to attribute it to the devil. And that is what led Jesus to respond the way he did. And he was very, very strong in his condemnation of what um, they were saying here. And you have to remember who these Pharisees were, and in particular, the teachers of the law, who they were, what they represented, what their motivations were. These were people who had memorized large portions of the Torah. Anybody here following our chronological Bible reading plan? You're probably somewhere in Exodus right now. When you get into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you start reading about all of these laws and all these ceremonies and all these sacrifices, how they put the tabernacle together, and you see all the intricate detail, they memorized all of that. All 613 laws that were found in the first five books of the Bible, they had those memorized. As well as some of the Psalms and the major prophets. They should have known exactly who Jesus was through just simply memorizing the Torah, much less the prophets and the Psalms. They should have so known exactly who he was. I mean, his miracles spoke to who he was. His words spoke to who he was. Even the, the parables he told them explained who he was. All of this should immediately triggered in their minds something that said, whoa, this is the promised Messiah that is speaking to us right now. But instead, they were viewing Jesus through a very narrow lens that was clouded by a desire to keep a position among their people and a place in their life. You see, the Pharisees, as a group, had a great deal of respect in their culture. They were the rabbis. They were the ones that everybody looked up to. And they viewed the they viewed the prophecies about the coming Messiah through that lens. They saw the coming Messiah as a person that would be like King David, who would restore Israel to its former glory as the world's one and only superpower, that Jesus would come overthrow Rome at that time, and that Israel would be like Rome and conquer the entire known world at that time. In essence, this was their version 
of the prosperity gospel. That they would hold some type of position in this new kingdom. That they would be healthy and wealthy and happy and, and almost worshipped among the community. And because of that misinterpretation of who the Messiah was supposed to be, it prevented them from seeing that he was standing right there in front of him. In front of them. Because Jesus threatened what they perceived as an earthly reward that they were due. So they condemned him. And that's the background of Jesus speaking about the unforgivable sin. But before we get into what this sin is exactly, before we take apart what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit entails, let's look at what it is not. Because there have been many sermons, many um, pastors and preachers out there who try to, to, try to place the, bap, or the blasphemy of against the Holy Spirit into the wrong category here. So let's look at three things what it is not. The first thing it is not, it's not cursing or making fun of the Holy Spirit just on its own. And many of you here, if you've come from charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds, you've probably heard some type of anecdotal story from a pastor who who was involved in some great move of God where the Holy Spirit's moving, people are getting saved, and, and you'll hear them say, well, I heard somebody speak against this move or, or speak against the Holy Spirit's actions in this, and they drop dead right there. Or they're on their way home, they were hit by the bus or something like that. And there's no proof of it, but they contribute that to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit's move. But Jesus says here, and in several places in the Gospels, that all blasphemies and slanders will be forgiven men, if they repent. Unrepentant blasphemy is like any other sin. It is not going to be forgiven. And I remember once being in a revival meeting at our first church, where at the beginning of the service, one of the leaders stood up, told everybody to pull out their cell phones and flip them open. Everybody here remembers the old flip phones? You have to open and, and silence them. He said, I want you to make sure you turn off your cell phones because the Holy Spirit's move and the Holy Spirit is so delicate that if it, your phone goes off, it might cause the Spirit to leave. And I remember sitting there thinking, it's like, okay, the Holy Spirit's moving. People are getting saved. People are being healed. People are being set free. And then all of a sudden, dun, 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 from somebody's cell phone, and the Holy Spirit goes, ah, and runs out of the room. That seems a little silly to me, doesn't it? I mean, I understand what they were trying to, what they were trying to say. They didn't want people being distracted. But if you think about it, the Holy Spirit's a pretty tough guy. He's a pretty tough guy if he has to live in my heart on a daily basis and put up with all my wanderings, put up with all my rebellion, put up with all my sin, yet still love us enough to continue to teach us, to lead us, to convict us, so that we can someday enter into our reward. Amen. And there's another misconception about what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Some people would say, well, if you use God's name in vain, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I would not recommend, of course, using God's name in vain. I mean, obviously, that's a sin. It's a big enough sin that, that God considers his name to be so sacred that he put it as number three of the Ten Commandments. And God went so far to say that he would, when he was giving these commandments, that he would not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name. And I remember that some people get so 
paranoid and so worried about this. And I was helping in my youth group at the last church, and a visiting teenager was so excited. She accepted Jesus. She was being set free from depression and, and suicide and cutting and all kinds of stuff that she was so excited at the end of the service that she said, OMG, I'm so happy to be here. You know, she kind of uses God's name carelessly, or God the term God carelessly. And all of a sudden, it's like everybody stopped and looked at her and they were thinking, oh gosh, it's like, bing, horn one, bing, horn two, and a tail coming out you know, from behind her here that, oh my gosh, the devil just caused her to curse God's name. And people use Jesus' name as a curse all the time, don't they? I have a nurse at work that I don't think can literally utter a single sentence without saying Jesus at the end of it. And... One day it bugged me enough to where I complimented her on her deep devotion to Jesus. And she said, what? And I said, well, you keep saying Jesus' name so much, I'm assuming you're praying and worshiping him. And as a pastor, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that, that you live your faith out like that so much. And she looked at me like I was crazy, but, well, I kind of am. But, but it's so common that people barely even notice it anymore. I remember that that's a word you can never say carelessly on TV. You couldn't use God's name in vain on TV. You remember that? Now, are these people committing blasphemy? Absolutely. But by the definition I gave earlier, blasphemy is to speak ill of or mock the work, the words, or the character of a deity. So is using a deity's name carelessly or as a curse blasphemy? Yes. But is that what Jesus is referring to here? Because if it is, I would say that probably 90% of the people here, if not 100%, have at some time in our lives used God's, Jesus's, or the Holy Spirit's name either wrongly or have questioned them or have outright railed against the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in our lives during those dark times or before you got saved. You've used God's name or Jesus's name or cursed the Holy Spirit somehow or in some way so that if we believe that to be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is talking about, we're kind of wasting a Sunday morning being here, aren't we? Because we're not going to heaven anyway. If we believe that to be what Jesus is talking about here. The third commandment, when you read it in the original language, very narrowly defines itself in relation to what using God's name in vain means. If you transliterate the Hebrew directly into English, it would say, do not use the name of Yahweh in vain. The na God's name is not God. Okay, it's a, God is a descriptive term for who God is. He is a God. It's like calling your mother mommy, or your father father or dad, or me pastor. It is not my name, it is a title. It is not God's name, it is a title of who God is. It's a descriptive term. And I would include that same principle of using Jesus' name in vain because that is a proper name of God. It's just as the Holy Spirit is a proper name of God, using it as a curse, but that's not what Jesus is referring to in this instance. So what's the last example? In this last example of what I don't think constitutes blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this one might be a bit delicate for many, so please listen with open hearts and ears because I've heard a lot of well-meaning pastors and many different denominations refer to this next thing as the unforgivable sin, and that is suicide. About 18 years ago, I was working as a paramedic in Walworth County. 
Walworth County is in the southern, southeastern portion of the state, right where Lake Geneva is. And I got a call for a person who had hung themselves. And we got there and I managed to save him. He crushed his larynx. I, I gave him an airway in his neck and managed to save the guy's life. He went to the trauma center for several weeks and then was discharged to a mental health facility for a few months and then released. Two weeks after he was released, he shot himself in the head with a shotgun. And I happened to be the person who responded to both calls. But when I went to the next, the second one, there's nothing more I could do at that point but pronounce him dead. And because I had been there both times and had prayed with the family in the hospital, they asked if my partner and I would come to the funeral. And it was kind of a mainstream church. And I worked the schedule around so I could go and went to the service. And the pastor who was performing the service wasn't very sensitive in the way that he presented what he believed. He wasn't a people person, that's for sure. And during the homily, he told us, don't bother to pray for this person as his fate was sealed. Because he took God's Holy Spirit that was supposed to be living within him and killed himself, and he committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he is now in hell. pastor said this during the service. I don't even think I was called into the ministry yet, or it started my studies, but I wanted to jump out of my my seat and pretty much walk up there and punch the guy for his very unbiblical, unloving, and indelicate way of expressing what he thought was truth. Suicide is one of those difficult subjects that pastors have to deal with, that we, even as Christians, have to deal with when people ask us about it. And I think pastors are so afraid of people doing it that they tell them that it's an unforgivable sin, it's a one-way ticket to hell, so people don't go out there and consider it. But it's not biblical. And I want to preach the Bible to you. Now, I want to say very emphatically that I think suicide, assisted suicide or euthanasia, is a grave sin against God. However, I don't see it as unforgivable. Some would say, well, they died committing a major sin that they could not possibly repent of. Well, the Bible says that all sin is equal in the eyes of God, and all rebellion against him has the same penalty, which is eternal death and hell. And with the exception of Jesus, every single human being, including everybody in this room and the person preaching this sermon, is going to die with some sin in our heart. There is something in our past, some attitude, some action that we have done in our life, either consciously or unconsciously, that we have failed to ask um, forgiveness for or repented of. And that's just being human. That's just being who we are. So I don't, that's just a human condition. I don't believe suicide is an automatic ticket to hell. So how should we view suicide? Kind of like this. When I got saved, I worked in an electronics factory on an assembly line, and occasionally several of us who were Christians in this factory would be able to um, get on the same assembly line so we didn't have to listen to the gossip and all the bad talk that other people were talking about. And instead, we'd have some pretty intense conversations about spiritual issues. And we had Baptists there, we had Lutherans there, Methodists, Assembly of God, and even a poor Catholic woman who would hardly ever talk. And we would have very rousing rousing debates on the Bible. And one of the subjects that came up one day was, well, what if I had been a, a faithful Christian for 20 years 
and then sin by committing adultery, and I died in the very act of committing adultery, would I go to heaven? So, you know, you had your kind of the, the more Baptist and, and, um, and Reformed believers over here saying, well, once saved, always saved. You're going to go to heaven no matter what. Then you had us over here more on the Methodist and uh, holiness bent over here going, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, we're kind of stay holy or else. You know, you mess up and you die and, and you might end up in a very warm place and, and all that. So there was this kind of this wave going back and forth across the line and until it, uh, it gathered the attention of the boss. The boss had this huge office above the assembly floor with a big window and he would just be looking out to see if anybody was slowing down on the lines all the time and all of a sudden we heard our lead get page like Boyd Becker 300 Boyd and that was the boss calling down tell him get your line under control and and Boyd came up and said okay guys you guys you guys got to calm this down and so somebody asked him goes Boyd what do you think he goes I think that if I'm going to die and go see Jesus that's not where I want to be coming from I wouldn't want to have to answer to God and say, so what were you doing right before you died? That's not the way I'd want to see Jesus. That's kind of how I view suicide. I don't want to have to come to the Lord who gave me new life, saying that I had taken that life. That's how I view suicide. And these are the three big things that I've heard wrongly called the unforgivable sin. So let's focus on what Jesus is actually speaking to here. In the context of the biblical account found in three of the four Gospels, when you put all those scriptures together, we see that Jesus was essentially saying the same thing, that all blasphemy will be forgiven, except that is what against the Holy Spirit. And remember what we said blasphemy is defined as. Blasphemy is to speak ill of or mock the work the words or character of a deity. And I want to focus on that word work for a moment. And one of these, if not all of them, have to be present to commit blasphemy. What, or more accurately, who is the Holy Spirit and what is his work? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. He is one God in three persons. And I don't want to get into that any further because that's just a whole other message we'll discuss when we do our 16 fundamental truths later this year. The Holy Spirit is referred to as a he, not because he's physically male, but because the Bible traces authority through the masculine gender. Now, if you're a feminist here, again, I'll explain that at a later date and why that is. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's work in John chapter 16. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. Jesus is speaking about his death here. For if I do not come away, the helper or counselor a word for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now watch this. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember, that which makes blasphemy evil is that it mocks the work of a deity. So in, con so in this context, blasphemy is describing, is resisting the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So that Jesus cannot be revealed for who he is. Two quick examples from the early history of the church. Stephen, you remember the, the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. He's a deacon in the church and because of his witness for Jesus Christ, he is arrested and put on trial for heresy with the Sanhedrin. 
He begins his defense with a history lesson of Jewish deliverance by God throughout history. But then he says this, and he said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. What is he describing? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Resisting the work of God. Prior to that even, many people in the early church, right after the Holy Spirit falls, people are getting saved, they're selling their possessions, they're bringing all the proceeds to them who, who have need and help to support the apostles who are active in spreading the word of God and spreading the news about Jesus. A couple in the church named Ananias and Sapphira sold some land and held back some of that money for themselves. Now the fact they held some back wasn't a problem. Peter tells them that. It was your money. The fact was they, tried, they lied to the church and told everybody that they gave all the money in an effort to make themselves look generous. Peter had this to say about them. Why has Satan made you keep back some of the money from the sale of that property? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? In other words, why have you misrepresented what the Holy Spirit's work is in your life and try to, and try to elevate yourself in the minds of people instead of Jesus? Well, if you know the story, they both dropped dead. But that was the first century. What about now? I read this in a commentary when I was, when I was uh, preparing this. And it says, Reserve that the blasphemy is understood by our Lord as showing the state of the heart. What is the effect of a change of heart, of repentance? Would it not be to enter into our Lord's utterance and favor? For the heart opposition, for heart opposition, there is no forgiveness. As Tyndale says, sin against the Holy Spirit is despising of the gospel and his working. Where that attitude has made its home, there is no remedy for sin. For it fights against faith, which is the forgiveness of sin. And if that rebellion be put away, faith may enter in, and all other sins will depart. The unforgivable sin is this. It's resisting the Holy Spirit's call to surrender to Jesus and to cast all of your hope and all of your faith upon him. It's deliberately turning your back on the saving work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's right. Now people worry, have I committed this sin? Have I done this? Here is a test. Any sin mankind wants pardon for is forgivable. However, if we turn our backs on the voice of the Holy Spirit, we begin to silence his convictions, and eventually we cannot hear his convicting power. This is effectively blocks the working of God in our lives because we have reached a point where we are unable to hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Consider this illustration of the unpardonable sin. Imagine that you are tired of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your favorite pet sin. You want to completely remove his promptings, even though the voice is warning you of danger and lovingly trying to show you the right path. So what do you do? 
you begin to build a theoretical brick wall to block that conviction. Each brick in the wall sends, represents a singular time you reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As you continue to reject the Holy Spirit, that voice that you hear, that prompting, that leading that you have, gets softer and softer. You become more and more confident in your pathway of life. And eventually, as you lay more and more bricks down, you can't hear the Holy Spirit's voice anymore. Thus, you effectively cut off your way of repentance and therefore cut off your way of salvation. Let's end with some scripture that reinforces this idea. Hebrews 6, chapter, or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 says it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of this coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That thought's continued in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. That says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Verse 31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Both these scriptures are referring to a heart change toward the things of God. But Jesus right now is standing between you and that decision. It's like he's standing between you and a thousand foot clip with jagged rocks on the bottom. To lose your salvation, you're going to have to fight Jesus over it. You're going to have to tackle him, throw him to the side, spit on his face, step on him as he, as he tries to keep you to that. You're going to have to literally turn your back and curse Jesus to your last breath on this earth to do it. And finally, I'm going to say this. If you're worried that you've committed this sin, if you're really worried about it, pretty good indication you haven't. Because you still feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit working within you. And that's a good place to be. We want the Spirit's power and conviction working within us. Let's pray.